Good afternoon and welcome to the Get a Grip podcast. I'm your host, Corey Grip. Welcome to show number 21. A lot of interesting things been going on in the sports world the last few weeks. You know, I wanted to break it down. You know, I got a Super Bowl 55 recap. I wanted to talk about Tom Brady's legacy. Then I will get into ranking the Super Bowls that I have watched in my lifetime. I've watched 14 Super Bowls since I started, since I was a football fan. And I will rank them 1 to 14 and the reasons why. I'll follow that up with some more NFL offseason news, quarterback trade talk, Russell Wilson, and some comments made by Draymond Green as well as some of my biggest surprises to this point during the NBA season. But I first wanted to start off with Super Bowl 55. People understand what we're watching. We're watching some of the greatest athletes ever, ever. I don't think people really appreciate, I know I don't really appreciate sometimes, the greatness of Tom Brady, LeBron James. You know, these two guys are truly incredible. Tom Brady has officially established, and it's not official, it's, it's been official since the 28-3 Super Bowl comeback against the Atlanta Falcons a few years ago, but Tom Brady's the GOAT. And I think more than that, though, I think Tom Brady's proving that he was the system in New England. And I'll get to that in a second. But Brady, Brady's impact is, is immeasurable. It, his biggest impact isn't on the field. It's what's happening off the field. But on the field, Brady did what he had to do. Made no mistakes. I think Tom Brady's really great at recognizing what he has to do for his team to win. Didn't play great against Green Bay in the second half. Three interceptions in the NFC Championship game. But when they needed plays to be made, he made them. He made a big conversion to Gronkowski to get them into field goal range. A huge third down to Chris Godwin on a jet sweep to end the game. Three touchdowns over 200 passing yards. No turnovers against uh, the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. And he took what the defense was giving him. He didn't force anything, and he understood that, listen, our defense is going to play really well today. I just can't mess it up. And that's exactly what he did. Not even just that, but the Buccaneers rushed for over 145 yards. And this game was clearly won in the trenches. I mean, we kind of established, we kind of saw that. Um, I was really surprised, and I think a lot of people were surprised. The Chiefs only ran the ball nine times with Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And they only had 11 combined carries for their backfield. Daryl Williams getting two carries. Clyde Edwards-Alaire averaged 7.1 yards a carry. I know, I know the Chiefs are such a big play offense. They love to take the shots down the field to Tyreek Hill, McCall Hardman, hit Travis Kelsey down the seam. You also have Sammy Watkins, Demarcus Robinson. And the Chiefs have done so well with that downfield passing attack. That, that's why they were so successful these last three years. It was just because they relied on Mahomes and his talent and kind of leaned on his arm to get them to where they've been. Three straight AFC Championship games, two straight Super Bowl appearances in a championship uh, two years ago over the San Francisco 49ers. But this backfired. Um, the, the Bucks wanted them to run the football. They wanted them to run the football because the Bucs knew they, the run defense in the end would, would, be, would be fine. Even though they were giving up seven yards to carry, they weren't going to go away from what they wanted to do, which was take away anything over the top. And that's what we saw. Tyree Kill 
didn't really have much of an impact in the game. He had seven catches for 73 yards, but most of that came in the second half when the game was over. Um, and nothing was over the top. I will say this about Mahomes. I think some of the criticism from Mahomes is, is a little unfair. Um, you know, Mahomes had to make some incredible plays. I mean, no quarterback in that situation, not not Tom Brady, not Aaron Rodgers, not Drew Brees, not Deshaun Watson, not Russell Wilson, not Ben Roethlisberger, not Dak Prescott, no really good quarterback in the NFL today would have been able to succeed with the situation that Mahomes was put into um, on the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. Both starting tackles are out. The interior of the offensive line was more healthy, but they got pushed around by Vita Vea and, and Ndamukong Sue and Shaq Barrett and JPP, Devin White, Levante David. They just had their way with them. And no quarterback would have succeeded in that situation. But potential touchdowns to Daryl Williams and Tyreek Hill went right through their hands and hit them in the face mask, dropped to the ground. Travis Kelsey dropped a huge third down earlier in the game. Mahomes was under pressure almost every single play. He was never comfortable. He was pressured 29 times, which is a Super Bowl record to go along with. He was sacked three times and he was hit 10 times. Mahomes made a, made a lot of something out of nothing. He really had to just kind of run around and run around and try and find someone down the field. And he did that a lot of times and had almost pulled off a lot of spectacular plays, but a lot of his receivers uh, let him down. You know, he, he made some very spectacular plays and just the plays were not made by his playmakers. And the whole offensive line was just simply overwhelmed. Um, the Bucs took away everything deep, as I've just said. You know, um, Devin White was flying around, making plays. Him and Levante David did a great job adequately taking away Travis Kelsey. And while Travis Kelsey had finished with over 10 catches for over 100 yards, a lot of that was when the game was kind of already established and over. And it, it a lot of empty stats. You know, Travis Kelsey and Tyreek's little impact on the game were just non-existent. Despite them racking up almost 200 receiving yards between the two, they just felt like they didn't have an impact on the game. Todd Bowles pitched the perfect game plan. You know, the Bucs, it's funny. They were top five in the NFL in sacks and, and sack and uh, blitz percentage at 39% on the season. But they only blitzed 11% of the time in the Super Bowl. What that means is, listen, they're going to trust their front four to get pressure, which they did against the backup tackles. And... Um, they were going to drop seven into coverage and take away anything deep. Now, I think it would have been a different game had Eric Fisher been healthy. It's a little bit easier to prepare. They could have – I don't think the Bucs would have had the same game plan if Eric Fisher was healthy. Uh, if Eric Fisher was healthy, you know, you can slide a little bit of the protection to, um, to the left side of the offensive line where Mitchell Schwartz had been playing but has been hurt for most of the season. And Eric Fisher would have been able to hell up held up. I think the Bucks' defensive game plan would have been a lot more different. I think they would have blitzed a little bit more. Um, I still think they would have tried to take a lot of things over the top, but you know, when you have one of your starting offensive tackles, when you're going to, you're going to leave them, um, you know, a perennial pro bowler and Eric Fisher, you're going to leave them a lot more one-on-one -on -one to trust them to make the blocks that they need to make. That's just not what happened. And the Bucks took advantage. But what I will say about Tom Brady it's it's all the it's all the immeasurable things that matter. His preparation, his film study, his attention to detail. He brought all of that. Championship aspirations, the championship mindset. He understood, he understands what it takes to win. 
And he brought that whole mindset to a team that hasn't been in the postseason since 2007 and hasn't really been relevant since the early 2000s, late 90s under Tony Dungy and John Gruden with that legendary Tampa 2 defense. I, I will still say, listen, I still give Bill Belichick 40% of the credit. I know a lot of people are starting to lean, you know, Bill Belichick only gets 30% or 20% of the credit, 25%, but I give Bill Belichick 40% of the credit because at the end of the day, the greatest quarterback in the world can't succeed without great coaching and a great roster around him. And I'm not saying that New England always had a great roster, but what I am saying is that Bill Belichick got the most out of the players that he brought in. Um, the bye week was key for Tampa Bay. It was key. It came at the best time. You know, Tampa was on a had lost three of their last four games. They got steamrolled by the Saints on Sunday night. They got out. They got completely outplayed in the first half by the Chiefs before rallying and almost you know give, giving themselves a chance to win. And they kind of got pushed around by the Rams on Monday Night Football. But the bye week came at the best time because Tom Brady was able to refocus and really spend a lot of time with the extra week to really spread his gospel, spread his message of what it takes to win, spread his intensity. And I think all the other players kind of picked up on it and they bought into Brady's process and what he understood and what he knew it it was going to take to win and get to the Super Bowl. And I think we saw that over the last eight weeks of the season where the offense was red hot, the defense started to play much better, get a lot more pressure, start to force takeaways again like they had earlier in the season. I will say this about Bill Belichick and Tom Brady's legacy. Tom Brady's the GOAT. That's been established. But Bill Belichick has never been the best in the draft. He's never been that. But what Bill Belichick is very good at is recognizing veteran players, players that other teams don't want, and he takes those players and he helps mold them into key players for his teams. Wes Welker, Kyle Van Noy, Chris Hogan, Danny Amendola, Rex Burkhead, Brandon LaFell, Julian Edelman, David Andrews, Shaq Mason, Stephon Gilmore, Jason McCourty, among others. There's many more, but you know a lot of those guys are low-level free agents or guys that get released or come to New England in small trades for late-round picks. And Bill Belichick, the thing that Bill Belichick does better than any coach in NFL history as he plays to his players' strengths, he knows a lot of these guys that came into New England weren't great players, but they did some things really well. And Bill Belichick would put them in positions to do those things really well. A lot of, He'd have some players where they're better pass rushers than run stoppers, so he'd put them in, in pass rushing situations or vice versa, or he would put receivers that maybe aren't as good out wide in the slot. He would, he would really know his players and know their strengths and play to their strengths. That's why he got a lot out of these players and why a lot of these players in the Patriots system, when they go elsewhere, don't succeed because teams don't do the same thing with their strengths. They kind of try to play them out of position and do a lot of different things with them. But that's not what Bill Belichick did. Bill Belichick always had a top 10 defense almost every single year with Tom Brady. But having said that, if not for the legendary quarterback play, none of it matters. Um, Bill Belichick gets credit for getting the right pieces around Brady for 19 years. Now, the last year they were together was abysmal. The Patriots had no skill position players, no weapons, no deep threat. I mean, at least before, you know, Brady had Brandon Cooks and Randy Moss and Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. 
you know, he had uh, Chris Hogan was solid. Danny Amendola was solid. They all had good relationships with Brady. LaFell was good with Brady. I mean, Brady had a lot of not great receivers, but good to above average wide receivers that Brady had great chemistry with that helped him make plays. So, yeah, Bill Belichick gets the credit for getting the right pieces around Brady. But Brady gets the most credit, 60%. I always thought it was 50-50. But after seeing the way Brady took Tampa to the Super Bowl, I'm going to say 60-40. Because if it weren't for Brady, all of that getting low-level free agents and putting them into the system and playing to their strengths, none of that matters if Tom Brady doesn't get the most out of those players. And he buys in to to the culture of Bill Belichick. So, you know, I, I think another thing that we saw was the Bucks responding to adversity every playoff game. They had trouble with Taylor Heineke. The offense stepped up. Their offense struggled against the Saints, but the defense forced tur- four turnovers, gave the offense a lot of short field opportunities, and they made the most of those opportunities after falling behind 17-13. Brady, horrible second half against the Packers, as I've already said, but the defense held up and slowed down Aaron Rodgers in the red zone. This all stems from Brady's pedigree and his championship experience of knowing what it takes And I think the bye week again was so key that it allowed Brady to really be himself and show his teammates, listen, this is a long season. We're a good team, but we're going to have to really step things up a matter. And it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to handle adversity. And that's exactly what the Bucs did, winning their last eight games. Credit to Tom Brady. Um, Never was a fan of him in New England as he had tormented my Pittsburgh Steelers for years. But I have a lot of respect for Tom Brady. And, you know, I'd be the first to say I thought they were going to win the NFC South. I didn't think they'd get to the Super Bowl in year one. I thought they'd be close, but I wasn't sure how it was going to go year one. But if anything, if Tom Brady proved anything, it's that you never bet against this man. He always has an answer for the doubters. And he proved that the last eight weeks of the season. So I'm now going to go into, you know, the ranking of the Super Bowls that I've watched. You know, there's been some classics, okay? Um, this past year's Super Bowl, very low on my list, but I'm going to start off with the f- number one Super Bowl of my lifetime. And I'm a little biased on this one, but I'm going to say the 2008 Steelers uh, versus the Cardinals. This was just a great game. Um, but I think the biggest reason why, and, and I did these rankings based on moments, based on moments, um, based on the stories leading up to the game, based on the stories within the game great plays, magical moments. For me, that's what made up my my top five. That's why my top five kind of stands alone. And I don't think it's disputable that the best five Super Bowl games of the last 14 years, in my opinion, because all five of these games had historic moments, plays, uh, you know, context after the game that just none of the other Super Bowls could compare to. And I'll start with the Steelers versus the Cardinals. We saw two of the best plays in Super Bowl history. The James Harrison 100-yard return pick six to end the first half. The Santonio Holmes uh, toe-tap touchdown in the corner. One of the most dramatic two-minute drill drives I've ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, that might have been the best um, fourth-quarter drive in Super Bowl history. Um, You know, it started off with uh, one of the most clutch drives in Super Bowl history, especially after the holding penalty. First and 20, deep in your own end, just over two minutes to play. You're down four. You know, the Cardinals had ripped off two fourth-quarter touchdowns. They had taken their first lead to the game. And um, for me as a fan, this is obvious. But, you know, the defense carried the Steelers all season, but it was the offense that won the day. You know, I thought Big Ben coming into that game, he wanted to really make up for – 
um, his horrible first Super Bowl appearance against the Seattle Seahawks just a few years before, and he did with this great drive. San Antonio Holmes was Super Bowl MVP. In my opinion, that was the greatest catch in Super Bowl history. I know everyone's going to say it was David Tyree, but for me, David Tyree's catch was not a helmet catch. He caught it, caught, put it on his helmet. I've watched the replay. I don't understand why people keep trying to dispute it. It's still a miraculous play and a great catch, but I still say the context because Santonio Holmes' catch was the the game the game clinching score, the game leading score. Big Ben had to throw the ball perfectly past th- over the hands of three Cardinals into the corner of the end zone. Holmes had to get both of his toes in. You know how hard that catch is. That's a lot harder than what David Tyree had to do, in my opinion. Not taking anything away from that catch. It was miraculous. But with all that being said, two of the best plays in Super Bowl history, the dramatic two-minute drill drive for the Steelers, um, just the back and forth in the second half. That's why this game's number one. Now, number two was really close, really. If it wasn't for the Steelers, I think this game would be number one. But the 2017 Eagles versus the Patriots Super Bowl, this was a great game. Uh, This was the high-scoring game. High-scoring Super Bowl that I have watched in my lifetime. We saw trick plays. We saw Super Bowl records. We saw the underdog story. Nick Foles was sensational. He threw for over 370 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, Tom Brady had a Super Bowl record, 505 passing yards. Both teams rushed for over 100 yards. Both teams pulled out trick plays. Um, you know, there was a pass from Amendola to Tom Brady that was incomplete, but then you had the Philly special, one of the greatest play calls in Super Bowl history. Uh, where Trey Burton threw to Nick Foles on fourth and goal at the end of the first half. High, like I said, highest scoring Super Bowl of the four team that I've watched. And just when I felt like, and, and this is why I think the game was so great. You know, everyone, it's hard to bet against Tom Brady and the Super Bowl. I picked the Patriots to win every Super Bowl they've been in, or Tom Brady. Um, and I've been right every single time except for this game. Because it's hard to bet against Tom Brady in the biggest game, except when he's playing against Eli Manning, right? Eli Manning of all quarterbacks. But it felt like the Patriots had control of the game. They took the lead in the fourth quarter with about eight minutes left, 33-32. You know, they were trailing by double digits for most of the game. But then but then when all when it seemed the Patriots had all the control, Nick Foles led a great touchdown drive to take the lead. And then the only sack in the game was a strip sack by Brandon Graham, recovered by Derek Barnett. The Eagles uh, kicked the field goal. They take a 41-33 lead, and that was the difference. What an incredible game. Back and forth. Lots of great moments, records. Highest scoring Super Bowl game of my, of my uh, not maybe not my lifetime, but certainly of the 14 that I've watched in its entirety. And that's why this is number two on my list. Number three. The 2014 Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Seahawks. This was just another great game. A lot of great moments, great plays. Uh, The Seahawks have the number one pass defense, third best rush defense in the league as the defending champs. Patriots, and and I think this adds to the storyline of the game. Patriots hadn't won a Super Bowl in almost 10 years and had been 0-2 in the Super Bowl on their previous two trips. Both losses to the Giants. They're trailing 24-14 deep into the fourth quarter. But this is why Brady's great, and this is why Brady's the GOAT. The moments. This is just a moment in Tom Brady's career. If not for the 28-3 comeback, this might be Tom Brady's greatest Super Bowl story was this game right here, given the defense that he was playing against, all the all-pro players in that Seattle defense with Richard Sherman. And and, th- and these were the Seahawks at their peak powers. You know, the, Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor and Richard Sherman – 
were some were the best players their positions at the time of this game, if not in the top two or three, along with Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill and Bobby Wagner and Bruce Irvin and Malcolm Smith. This defense was as loaded as we've seen. And for Brady to do what he did and lead back-to-back touchdown drives to take a 28-24 lead with a few minutes left was incredible. The Pats' defense is the story here in the second half. They forced three punts and an interception in the last four Seahawks possessions. But, but, you know, I really thought the game was over because just like the two Giants Super Bowl games, an amazing, unbelievable catch, first by David Tyree, the helmet catch, and then by Mario Manningham on the sideline in 2011. It, it seemed like the Seahawks were destined to win when Jermaine Curse made the unbelievable grab when he was laying down on the turf. Ball kind of bounced around and he just caught it. It just seemed they were destined to win. But that was followed by the most controversial, worst call in NFL history to throw the ball inside the three instead of run it with beast mode with the timeout in hand. And Malcolm Butler with a goal line interception of the ages. And I think the bigger context of this game, the bigger story is that the Seahawks have never been the same um, since that Super Bowl. They've never been back and they've never been back to the NFC Championship game either. I think that just adds to the significance of, of this game, not just to Tom Brady's legacy, but also to Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson's legacy as well. Uh, number four for me is the Ravens and the 49ers. Again, stories matter when you're ranking Super Bowls. Moments matter. Only 10 kickoffs had been returned for touchdowns in the Super Bowl, and Jacoby Jones had the longest one returned at 108 yards to start the second half. This, this game would have been a lot lower on my list had the score at the time been kind of the final score, but trailing 28-6, the 49ers got the benefit of the power going out in the Superdome, which helped spring their comeback. They scored 23 in answer to cut the lead to 31-29, but there was a controversial no-call and I'm shocked it wasn't called. Michael Crabtree was clearly held on a throw on a fourth and goal late in the game. This was the game uh, where the Ravens escaped with the victory. He was clearly held and had no opportunity to make the catch. I'm shocked it wasn't called. But, you know, again, context matters. In a Super Bowl, you know, referees don't want to decide the game. But in that situation, that, that, play, that flag had to be made. But... You know, the unbelievable comeback, the kickoff return by Jacoby Jones. But I think the biggest story of that Super Bowl run for the Ravens, not only did Ray Lewis retire on top, but Joe Flacco had one of the greatest postseason quarterback runs ever, um, throwing 11 touchdowns to zero interceptions, with including victories over Peyton Manning in Denver in double overtime and beating the defending AFC champion Patriots in the AFC championship game. What a great run by Joe Flacco, one of the greatest ever for a quarterback in postseason history. And that's why this Super Bowl is number four on my list. And number five, you can't have a top five. And for me, without mentioning the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, Patriots trailed 28 to three in the third quarter. Um, the Pats scored on their final five possessions as the defense forced three punts and a fumble in the Falcons' last four offensive possessions. Uh, Brady showed why he was the GOAT, uh, rebounding after an enormous pick six score, um, scoring on their first drive in overtime to win the Super Bowl. And it was the only game, Super Bowl game in, in history that went to overtime. And of course, Brady doing Brady things. You know, It always feels like Brady's doing is becoming the first to do something in NFL history, whether it was, you know, hosting and then winning um, the first Super Bowl ever to be hosted and won by a home team and then finished off by 
winning the only overtime game in and in Super Bowl history. Only, of course, only Brady would be able to pull it off. And, of course, Brady would only be able to pull off the comeback, win in overtime. I mean, this is just such Tom Brady. Uh, and what a great comeback and unbelievable. And I just, you know, I remember picking the Patriots in this game. And I just remember thinking I wasn't really that surprised. Like, to me, it felt like as great as the moment was, as unexpected as it was, it just felt like only Tom Brady would pull it off. Like, I wasn't really that surprised at the end of the day because I kind of just had this moment where it was like, you know what? Only Tom Brady. And I just had to laugh. It's like only Tom Brady could do this. Um, and that's why this is number five on my list. Number six, it was hard to not put this a little bit higher because it was the greatest upset in Super Bowl history. Um, the 2007 Super Bowl, the Giants versus the Patriots. Um, Patriots were 19-0. They appeared unstoppable offensively between Brady and Randy Moss, their connection. I think what gets lost in this win is what came a few weeks before where the Giants nearly upset the Patriots in week 17, losing 38-35. I think for me, uh, that kind of adds context to this game because I think for me, the Giants believed that they would win this game because they had had the most success against the Patriots more than most teams that season. Um, the Giants front four hounded Brady. I think, that's, I think that's Brady's biggest weakness in his career. The problem is, is that a lot of teams don't have the right formula to get to Brady. That's why Brady's had so much success over the course of his career because a lot of teams don't have that dominant front four pass rush that can get to Brady. But when they do, that's when Tom Brady really struggles. And we saw it against the Denver Broncos in the 2015 AFC Championship game. We saw it in the two Giants Super Bowls. Uh, we saw it at times against the Rams a couple years ago in the Super Bowl. Like If you can get pressure on Tom Brady, you can make him look more human than anything. But that's why what the Giants did was so unbelievable because they made him look human. They made him look mortal. They made that team look mortal. But why it's number six on my list, it wasn't a great game. But it was a great moment for the sport. And it had one of the most iconic plays in Super Bowl history with Eli Manning escaping the sack and hitting David Tyree for one of the greatest plays and catches in Super Bowl history. I will say it again for the record. He did not catch it on his helmet. It ended up on his helmet. Um, but the game wasn't great itself. But the moments and the context, that all matters. That all matters. And that's why this is number six on my list. Number seven, and, and I think six through Six, you know, the top seven games for me were hard to list because all of them were great. But I'm trying to rank moments and plays and context, and I'm trying to rank that out. Number seven had a lot of great moments. It, it was, again, a, good, a really good game, but not as great as the other six. The 2009 Saints versus the Colts. You know, the Colts led the whole first half of 10-6 at half, but the Saints just really didn't have the momentum to move the football. But one of the gutsiest calls and and not only Super Bowl history, but NFL history for Sean Payton to call an onside kick to start the second half sparked the Saints. They outscored the Colts the rest of the way, 25 to seven, including a pick six by Tracy Porter to ice the game. It was the Saints' first appearance and victory in the Super Bowl. And I think what adds to the significance of this victory, it was a huge win for the community that had just started to rebound from Hurricane Katrina just a few years ago. The pick six, the onside kick, two very historical plays, not just for the Saints organization, but for the community. And for it to be their first ever appearance and victory in the Super Bowl also adds to the significance. Now we start to get into, you know, 
it is what it is, right? The Chiefs versus the Niners just a couple years ago, 2019. I think we just saw the greatness of Patrick Mahomes was born in this, this postseason. I know Patrick Mahomes is very human against Tampa Bay, but again, didn't have both of his starting tackles. And a lot of his receivers didn't just drop passes. Um, but I think in this moment, in this postseason run, it showed that no lead is safe for Patrick Mahomes. He came back from lead uh, deficits of 24, 10, and 10, including a 10-point deficit in the fourth quarter against the 49ers. You know, they picked him off twice deep in the second half. But um, the Wasp play call will go down and, 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 and lore for Chiefs fans. The third and 15, throwing off his back foot, two Niners in his face. And Mahomes threw a laser to Tyreek Hill. And I remember watching that game with my buddies, and I remember saying, it's only going to take one play for the Chiefs to get back in this game. It's going to take one play for all the momentum to swing to Kansas City. And this was the play for a huge big play offense. They hadn't had it that game. But this was the play that gave all the Chiefs all the momentum. Because from that point on, they outscored San Francisco 21 to nothing. Um, The Chiefs' defense was big as well, forcing two key punts down the stretch to allow their offense the chance to win the game. And like I said, it only takes the one play. Uh, and I think another thing that add, another storyline that kind of adds to the significance of this game is just Kyle Shanahan, another blown second half lead under his watch, um, kind of just adds to the to the lore of 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 his Super Bowl story. Um, number nine, uh, two thousand eleven Giants versus the Patriots. Uh, well, this game did not hold as much historical significance. Uh, Eli Manning did beat Brady again, again, cementing Eli's status as a Hall of Famer. Not just do it once, but to do it twice, to be a two-time Super Bowl MVP. Uh, this, these two wins likely project and vault Eli into Canton, Ohio. But just, again, another clutch moment and another clutch throw by Eli to Mario Manning. I mean, some consider that catch and throw a lot more difficult than the David Tyree catch because it was on the sideline between two Patriots. That throw was one, it had to be on the money. It couldn't be off by an inch and it was just thrown as perfect as it could be. Um, That drive ended in a game-winning touchdown by Ahmad Bradshaw, just like the first matchup when Plexico Burris ended the game the very next, a couple plays later after the David Tyree catch. And and just like the first matchup, Tom Brady had many issues with the Giants pass rush. And uh, just like the first time, the Giants were road warriors. They beat the 15-1 Packers and the 13-3 San Francisco 49ers on their way to the Super Bowl. Uh, the Giants fell behind just like the first matchup. But, you know, there's something about playoff Eli that just led the Giants to another Super Bowl victory over Brady. I don't know what it is because Eli Manning is not a historically great quarterback. But against Brady, he's as great as, as, he's as, great as any postseason quarterback. And um, like I said, uh, you know, this, this game was – there wasn't as much historical uh, context and there was there wasn't as many m- great moments outside of the Manningham catch that's why it's as low as it is but nonetheless to beat Brady twice that's why alone he's in the top 10 Packers Steelers is my number 10 in 2010 um, you know Green Bay became the first six seed since the 05 Steelers to win three straight row games to get to and win the Super Bowl um, the Packers picked off Big Ben twice in the first half one of which was a pick six the other led to a touchdown. Um, you know, the Steelers had the best overall defense that season, the number one rushing defense, but you know, Aaron Rodgers put on a clinic throwing for over 300 yards and three touchdowns, no interceptions. Um, the reason why this, this game is so low, the final score was 31, 25. It never really felt like, and I'm a Steelers fan. This game never really felt like the Steelers were close. Like it always felt like the Packers had the momentum, had the edge. And just when it felt like the Steelers were starting to get a little bit of momentum back, 
First play of the fourth quarter, uh, Rashard Mendenhall uh, it, um, fumbles. Clay Matthews forces the fumble. Um, you know, they missed a 52-yard field goal earlier in the third quarter. And then the Packers went right down the field, scored, made it 28-17. And while the Steelers did cut it to 31-25, their last drive ended in a turnover on downs. It never really felt like the Steelers were close. Never really felt like they had control of the game. It felt like the Packers controlled the whole game. And this is why it's so low on this list. Uh, and again, the game's above this one. Had more significant moments in historical context. Uh, Bucks, Chiefs, it's 11th. Um, not much I can say. Brady, fifth Super Bowl MVP, um, seventh Super Bowl victory. One of the best defensive performances in the Super Bowl, along with the 85 Bears and the 2000 Ravens. The Bucks held the Chiefs out of the end zone. Um, you know, again, the moment. Um, it wasn't a great game, but the moments for Brady becoming the first team to host and win the Super Bowl in their home stadium. Again, only a feat that seems Brady could only pull off and do. It just kind of felt like it was their destiny to win this year during a pandemic. Brady won his first ring without Bill Belichick. The game itself was not great, but the context and moments were. Um, 2012, I'm just going to go 2012, uh, 13, and 14. Uh, the 2015 Super Bowl 50, Broncos versus Panthers. It just wasn't a great game. Uh, the Broncos, it was the number one defense versus the number one offense, but the number one offense had four turnovers in Carolina. Uh, Vaughn Miller had a defense performance for the ages, two and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, both of which led to 14 of the Broncos, 24 points. See, so he's just simply unblockable. Um, but it just, the quarterback play wasn't great. You know, Cam Newton had three turnovers. He was the MVP that year, and Peyton Manning barely had over 140 passing yards. Uh, but it was great to see Peyton retire champion. Just another not, just great game. And then, 2018 Patriots versus Rams. It was a close game the whole time, but it was very boring. I remember watching this game and like, this is just not a great game to watch. Patriots were up three nothing at halftime. They won 13 to three. The only thing that makes this game kind of you know important for Brady's legacy is, of course, Tom Brady put together a five play, 69 yard drive uh, for the game's only touchdown, completing four straight passes before Sony Michelle ran it in from two yards out. Uh, Bill Belichick called a great game, kind of adding to his lore as a defensive mastermind, holding the Rams, who scored over 30 points a game to three, forcing four sacks, a pick. Goff had a QBR of 15, uh, and Brady won his sixth ring. And then 2013, the Seahawks versus the Broncos. Um, clash of styles, league's best offense, historically great offense versus the league's best defense, but I'm not even going to get into it. The Seahawks bullied around the Broncos. The game was over from the first play when the, the snap went over Peyton Manning's head for a safety. And from there, it just it just didn't get any better. Malcolm Smith had a pick six. And Percy Harvin returned the opening kickoff of the second half to make it 29-0. Don't need to go much more into that. Now I'm going to transition into some NFL um, quarterback moves, quarterback trade between Jared, the Lions and the Rams, and then obviously Russell Wilson's complaints. Um, you know, Russell Wilson basically for the first time in his career uh, made some complaints about you know, management not giving him a better offensive line and he wants more input into the decision-making process. And to me, I, I completely agree. You know, I think Russell Wilson has every right to be upset with the Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks have drafted three offensive linemen in, the, in rounds one through three since trading away center Max Unger to the Saints for Jeremy Grant, Jimmy Graham. And it's no coincidence that in the five drafts since, they have had a, bo a bottom 10 offensive line every single year. Um, you know, and all three of those linemen have been underwhelming to average. Uh, Jeremy and Fed, German and Fetty wasn't great with Seattle. He now plays for the Bears. Uh, Ethan Posick has been average at best. 
And while Damian Lewis, the rookie this past year, was a good run blocker, he struggled as a pass blocker, which is the problem. The Seahawks, the Seahawks offensive line has kind of been good as a run blocking line, but they're not great in pass protection, which is, I think, the problem. Um, for this to work, I think Russ needs to not only commit time to his game and his body, but I do think if Russ really wants to have input, he's going to have to put the work in. And I think Russ will. He's as committed to the game and taking care of his body in preparation, not on the level of Tom Brady, but he's a very close second. I think he's going to have to do some self-scouting, and he's, I think he's going to have to make his case to management. Um, Russell Wilson will not be traded. I thought that was the dumbest rumor in, in the past five years for, for NFL uh, trades and whatnot speculation like he's not going anywhere now i will say if we have this if we're having the same conversation next year where the seattle offensive line struggles again and they have a quick postseason exit or they don't make the playoffs at all i think we may have more of a discussion for a trade but russell wilson's not going anywhere this offseason i thought that was ludicrous to hear but i will say this russell wilson's been sacked 40 times every season outside of his rookie year including almost being sacked 150 times the last three seasons combined I will say some of that is on Russell Wilson. You can't blame all sacks in the offensive line. But Russell Wilson, he, he does bail in the pocket too early at times, and he does try to extend the plays too often. But this past season, the, the Seahawks' offensive line was overwhelmed by fronts such as the Rams three times, including the playoffs, the 49ers, Cardinals, Washington, Giants, and Eagles. Many will blame the Seahawks' offensive struggles of the second half of the season on Russell Wilson. But the Seahawks played nine games this past year against teams that were top half in the league in sacks in the Bills, Dolphins, Eagles, Cardinals, Rams, Giants, and Washington. And of those games, they were five and five. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is the Seahawks scored an average of 34.4 points a game against teams that were bottom half in the league in sacks. But against the top half of the league in sacks, they averaged just under 24. That's no coincidence. To me, that's no coincidence. When a quarterback faces that kind of consistent pressure against good teams, they press, they try to make plays that might actually actually be there. They try to extend their plays. They try to be the hero. They try to put it all on themselves. And that's and that was the Seahawks undoing in the second half of the season. Russ had six of his seven fumbles against teams with that were top half in the league in sacks. And 11 of his 13 interceptions came against the teams in the same category. Russ has enough weapons. But he needs a healthier running back. Chris Carson keeps getting hurt, and he needs more help up front. I understand Russell Wilson needs to stop bailing in the pocket as much and putting more pressure on his offensive line, but Russell Wilson has to extend it. That's what makes Russell Wilson great is his ability to extend and make plays, but he does it far too often. And eventually, when you're bailing on the pocket that much and trying to extend plays and make off-script plays, you're eventually going to make mistakes. That's what we've seen with Big Ben and the Steelers over the course of his career is you see those off-script plays are great, and a lot of times they work out well, but when they don't work out well, it's like, well, why did you do that, okay? So again, I think if Russell, Russell Wilson's an elite quarterback in the pocket, but too many times we're seeing him scramble and having to make something out of nothing, and a lot of times he does it because he's just a great quarterback. But I think Russell Wilson wants to have more with his career, and that's why I think the Seahawks need to give him more help up front. But it's on Russ to make it happen. If Russ puts, if Russ puts in the work, I genuinely believe that they will listen to what he has to say and consider his options. But I do think this is something to keep an eye on. I wouldn't be surprised if the Seahawks have a new head coach in the next couple years. I think Pete Carroll is getting up there in age, and I think Pete Carroll has shown that he's not – he's got a lot of energy – 
but he's got too much power and he's not adapting. The NFL at this point is all about adapting. We The league is adapting. It's not a big running league. I think you still have to be able to run the football and play defense as we saw with Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl. Those two things still matter, but not as, not as much as they mattered 10, 15 years ago. And I think the Seahawks need to go out and address the offensive line issues. That's going to be key um, to really help the relationship between management and Russell Wilson. Otherwise, we could be seeing another mega quarterback trade uh, within the next a couple years. Now, I will say this, Matt Stafford to the Rams, Jared Goff to the Lions. Um, Goff is the kind of quarterback that needs everything to go right. Um, the Rams went from the second highest scoring offense in 2018 at 32 points a game to 24 points per game in seventh in the league in 2019, but they missed the playoffs. And then this year they fell to 23rd in scoring at 23.3 points per game. The Rams had the perfect storm in 2018 when reaching the Super Bowl. They had the sixth best graded offensive line according to Pro Football Focus. But in the following year, when they missed the playoffs, their offensive line was worked 31st worst in the league. And despite having the third best graded offensive line this year, golf was overwhelmed by physical teams, the Jets, the Niners, the Seahawks in Week 16, the Dolphins, and the Giants. The Rams lost two interior starters in Roger Saffold and John Sullivan to retirement, and they missed right tackle Ron Rob Heibenstein for half of the season due to injury. The NFL is all about adversity and how you handle it as a quarterback. That's why I don't think Dak Prescott's an elite quarterback, because we've seen when the offensive line's not great, when Zeke was suspended, when Dak doesn't have enough playmakers, like he can't overcome the, that kind of adversity. And I like Dak. He's got all the intangibles that matter. But he is not, he's a above average to good starter, but he's not good enough to win a Super Bowl. And I've been saying the same thing about Dak. He's not worth what he wants in the $40 million category. And that's why if I'm Jerry Jones, I'd be very concerned. But again, I think Dak's a top 12 quarterback in the league, and it's not going to be easy to find his replacement in free agency, in a trade, or in the draft. That's why I think the Cowboys are eventually going to have to pay him. But in the same, and the same goes for Jared Goff. He's a lot less mobile and athletic. And I think that's why this trade makes a lot of sense. The Rams' rush offense went from third best in 2018 to seventh worst in the league the following year, just under 95 rushing yards per game. And in 2020, they had the 10th best rushing attack with an even better offensive line. And Jared Goff still struggled. Jared Goff reached his ceiling. That ceiling was the Super Bowl, but everything went right. They got, the, they got the calls to go their way in the NFC Championship game against the Saints. They, they were healthy. And then the following, they, they've, all, they've always had a good defense the last few years now, especially with Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey. Um, but the Rams' offense has been limited. It's a lot of bootlegs, play action. But because Jared Goff is not a threat as a runner, teams are not playing him as a runner. They, they're going to drop back, and they, they want him to run because they know he won't. He, he will hesitate. He's not, he's, he's not a great athlete um, or a runner, though he does have good accuracy and arm strength. But I think Stafford's arm has always been one of the best in the league. And he's, had a, and he, and he's got above average mobility, and he's, not, and he's tough. He's not afraid to get hit because he's gotten hit a lot in Detroit. I think Stafford will really open up this offense again. You know, the Rams are going to have a, a great defense next year, a top 10 coach, a top 12 to 15 quarterback with a great arm and a good running game next year. Um, I, I think a lot of what Stafford struggled with in Detroit wasn't his fault, right? 
I know he's 0-3 in playoff games. I know he didn't win a division title with Detroit. But you got to keep in mind, it's Detroit. Before Stafford got there, they hadn't been to the playoffs since you know, Barry Sanders was playing in the mid-90s. Um, you know, Matt Stafford's never had a great front office. He's never had elite coaching. You know, Bill Cal- you know, uh, Jim Caldwell was a good coach. And he shouldn't have lost his job for the Lions to hire Matt Patricia. He was a good coach, but nothing like Sean McVay. Nothing like that. Nothing like Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, Mike Tomlin, Bill Belichick, uh, Brian Flores, um, Mike Vrabel, Sean McDermott, Andy Reid. Some of the elite coaches in this league. He's not even close to that, um, even though I like Jim Caldwell. He's never had a top five defense. He's never really had a good offensive line or a running game. The St- Stafford makes the Rams instantly better. And keep in mind, Jared Goff got the Rams to the playoffs in three of his, in three of his five years there. Um, including a trip to the Super Bowl and another trip to, to, the, to the divisional round. I think Jared Goff is a very good quarterback, and, he, and Jared Goff as a person is great, and he's a really good teammate. It had nothing to do with that. This trade had everything to do with upside. Stafford gives a lot more upside to the Rams' offense. Um, I think that will help their run game. Um, he will benefit more from better pass protection, better weapons, a better run game, better coaching, better management, aggressive management, smart management. Um, but Jared Goff's ceiling was met. Stafford's ceiling, I think, with the Ram, uh, Rams appears to be much higher. I don't know how Matt Stafford is going to play in that division. It's, it's going to be a very uh, tough division. Um, you know, It's probably going to be the best division in football next year between a healthy San Francisco team and an up-and-coming Arizona team. You can never count out Russell Wilson. He always seems to make the playoffs, even though the Seahawks roster probably isn't as good as the other three teams in the division. But I definitely think that with Matt Stafford, this offense is going to be better. I think they'll probably score closer to 30 points a game next year. And I think Sean McVay will definitely be able to really pull out all the stops. And his offense will take another uh, – and his offense will get back to what they were just a few years ago. I'm going to jump into the NBA real quick. You know, some of my bigger surprises. I'm really surprised at the Philadelphia 76ers. You know, I always said that Joel Embiid has the potential to be one of the best five players in the league. But he's always injured. He's always hurt. He always seems to be out of shape, overweight slightly. But he's playing at an MVP level for the first time in his career. He's averaging just under 30 points a game, uh, 10.8 10.8 rebounds, second highest PER in the league at 31.15. He's also shooting 30% from the three-point line. Doc Rivers has unlocked Joel Embiid's potential. Um, and I think Joel Embiid, yeah, he's had a few minor injuries this year, but he's staying relatively healthy for a consistent part of the season. Uh, Tobias Harris is also playing the best ball of his career since the last time he played under Doc Rivers, averaging 20 points a game. Now, the one concern that I have about Philly is the same concern I've had about Philly for the last four seasons. It's Ben Simmons' inability to shoot and his lack of confidence to shoot. I think that could be their downfall um, come playoff time. Now, I will say that uh, because Joel Embiid has been healthy and playing at an MVP level, they may be able to overcome um, those levels of uh, that those issues. But you know, if they play a team like maybe Milwaukee or uh, the Celtics or the Nets, I think they could expose those issues. Now, the problem with the Celtics is they don't have any great interior defense. Um, whenever Embiid plays Daniel Tice, he has probably some of the best games of his career. Um, and they've really yet to be challenged chemistry-wise. I'm not sold on this team yet because we've seen the Philadelphia 76ers have a lot of regular season success. Um, but Joel Embiid, yes, he's, he's looked great so far. He's been healthy. 
But keep in mind, he's been injury prone his whole career. So I want to see it to believe it. I want to see him get through a full season without a major injury. And I want to see if Ben Simmons uh, can continue to be consistent. Ben Simmons is a really good player. I've never said that. But I've said that he just doesn't seem to love the game. Because if Ben Simmons had a jump shot, this team would be NBA title favorites almost every single single season. uh, Just due to his... He's very talented, but... He just doesn't show the willingness to work on a jump shot. And so until he does, this team's ceiling is only so high. But because Julius, because uh, Tobias Harris and Embiid are playing so well under Doc Rivers, um, they've really impressed me so far. Uh, the New York Knicks have been actually very impressive, a huge surprise. Now, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs, but they're currently sixth in the East. Julius Randle is playing an all-star caliber basketball, and I certainly think he he's, should be an all-star this year. Uh, he's leading the Knicks in points, rebounds, and assists. The problem with the Knicks is they just don't have great guard play. I know they added Derrick Rose, but at this point in his career, he's not a great player, but he's a solid starter for them. I really like Emmanuel quickly as a rookie. He's played well so far, and he's shown that he is a capable scorer at the NBA level. But R.J. Barrett's been hit or miss, though I like his talent. Again, I'm, I don't know if the Knicks will make the playoffs, but it's clear to me that they bought in Tom Thibodeau and his and his philosophy of playing you know, really hard and playing defense and you know, and what you can consider, you know, defense in the league today. But the Knicks have been impressive. Um, I, like I said, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs, but they have impressed me. Uh, Julius Randle looks great. Their guard play is a little concerning, but, you know, they definitely have uh, adequate guards. But it could be their undoing of not making the playoffs, as most teams in the East have really good guard play. That's something the Knicks might have to uh, address in the draft of free agency down the line. But uh, the Jazz have also been really impressive to me. They have the best offensive and defensive ratings in the league. Uh, Donovan Mitchell is playing very well. I will say this. I really thought Donovan Mitchell or Damian Lillard should have been a West All-Star starter over Luka Doncic. Uh, I really like Luka Doncic, but he he, he came into the season out of shape. Um, he's never really been a great defender, though I, I, I admire his game. I think he's one of the smartest players in the league as far as his IQ for the game. Donovan Mitchell has been the best player on the best team so far record-wise in the league. Uh, Rudy Gobert is doing his thing as usual on both ends of the floor, averaging 13 and 13. Uh, Jordan Clarkson has been averaging 18 off the bench, especially with no Mike Conley. He's really stepped up. And the Jazz have six guys averaging double figures, and they seem to have the best chemistry in the league to this point with a 23 and 5 record, and they've won 20 of their last 21 games. The West is loaded, and to be where they are, Impressive, including wins over the Bucks, Sixers, Bucks twice, Sixers, Heat, Celtics, Mavs twice, Warriors, Nuggets, Hornets, and Pacers. Uh, for them to be there, you know, for them to beat those teams in twenty of their last twenty-one games is impressive. And the Mavs, huge disappointment. You know, I thought the Mavs getting to Game Six against the Clippers last year in the first round was a stepping stone for them, but they've gone backwards. They've gotten worse on the defensive end. They weren't great defensively last year. But they were the most efficient offense in NBA history. Now that they aren't as efficient, the defense is really being exposed. Now, I will say they will likely make the playoffs. They're only a couple games out at the moment. And uh, Porzingis is, you know, looking good. And Luke is getting back into shape. They have enough firepower to be a 6th, 7th, or 8th seed. I don't know if the Spurs can keep pace or if the Warriors have enough outside the step to make it. But it should be an interesting stretch down, race down the stretch. But the Mavs defense has looked absolutely horrible. Um, but the firepower alone will likely get them into the playoffs. Now, I wanted to kind of talk about, for my last topic, uh, Draymond Green made some comments um, basically saying that 
you know, the players have no power and the owners can do whatever they want um, as far as when it comes to benching players, trading players without warning. Um, I agree with what Draymond was saying, I, but I think it all starts with communication, okay? And I believe this for, and I, and I learned this in several classes at um, Marist College, leadership starts at the top. It's top-down communication. And when the top-down communication is skewed, to maybe communication at the bottom to the top, you're gonna have a really dysfunctional and unorganized organization. I think that's where the problems stem from. Ownership and management don't thoroughly communicate with the players. I think the players would have a lot more of an understanding of why they were traded, why they were released, um, or why they were benched if there was better communication between management and ownership. I think the thing is, is that the NBA is a player's league. So I think a lot of times ownership and management try to take that power back. They try to make moves that signal to the players, hey, you need us. Um, we're as important, if not more important than you in the grand scheme of things, when in reality that that's not the case. In the NFL, it's more in baseball, you know, a, an individual star can't succeed without the rest of the team. In the NBA, you can make the playoffs and make a playoff run if you have a, a super gifted, talented player uh, we've seen that with LeBron James with his time in Cleveland, how he got Cleveland in the finals multiple times when he was really the only consistent player or great player on the team. But again, I think it all starts with communication and it all starts from the top. Um, I don't like that management lie to players and players having to find out from third-party sources that they've been released or traded. Uh, I think there needs to be a, a, a level of respect and communication, a level of professionalism. I think a lot of times we hold these players to high expect high standards for professionalism with the media and professionalism off the court. Why can't we hold management and owners to the same standard? I know that the owners are writing the checks, but they should still be held to a higher standard and being professional with players and treating them with respect, not just like as a contract, but as a human being with a family. That all matters to me. Um, I don't have a problem when players are free agents and they leave where they want to go. I thought at the time when Katie signed with the Warriors, I didn't love the move. I kind of thought it was soft. Um, I thought he was kind of taking the easy road out. But after watching Russell Westbrook kind of self implode in the playoffs and always not be the best teammate at times with certain guys and guys get better after they left Westbrook, and this was proven statistically, you know, with Victor Oladipo and Kevin Durant and Sabonis and um, Paul George. You know, I kind of thought, you know what? KD was right. He was right to leave. Um, after watching Westbrook kind of self-implode, KD wanted to, you know, kind of fit in with the team culture. And he, he did that. And, and the Warriors needed him and he needed the Warriors. It was a match made in heaven. Um, it made sense why he left. But to me, I think players should do what they think is best for their careers. I, I agree with that. You know, it's their life. They have their own families. Like they got to do whatever they think is best, whether anyone agrees with it or not. But I think if a player signs long-term contract due to the belief that is good for their, for their career, then it is their obligation to play out that contract. That's why I was not a fan of how Anthony Davis and James Harden and Kawhi's situation played out. Now, Kawhi's situation is completely different 
because he felt completely betrayed and there was no trust between him and the organization. That's why he never played after he got hurt in the West Final. He barely played for them after he got hurt in the Western Conference Finals in 2017 Game 1 because I think he felt that there was a lack of trust and that he the team didn't believe what he was saying and the team was trying to go over his head to get him to play. That's why I think that was a little bit different of a case. But in the case of James Harden, listen, I, I had a huge problem with what James Harden did. What he did was completely unprofessional. Um, he didn't take enough ownership for his own failures in the playoffs and for not making the most out of the help that he did get in the forms of Dwight Howard, Russell Westbrook, and, and Chris Paul, and a coach that didn't challenge him and Mike D'Antoni, didn't force him to play defense, built the offense around him. James Harden didn't take enough ownership and responsibility for that because he was the guy that asked for more help. He was the guy that the offense was built around. He was the guy that went to management and asked for help. He was the guy that had a coach that didn't push him around, didn't really challenge him on the defensive end. So for me, that's why I had a problem with Harden. He was unprofessional. He was going to strip clubs. He was going to clubs. He was traveling around during COVID and not being at training camp with a new coach that's really trying to establish his own culture. And that's why I had a problem with Harden. I had no problem with Harden wanting out of Houston, but there's a way to handle it. There's a way to be professional. And again, when players and when players sit out and teams want to hold players out as long as and player and teams want to hold players out, I think as long as there's communication and an understanding between the two sides, then I respect that. And I don't have a problem with it. And both sides can find a situation that works for both parties. That doesn't bother me. But it has to be on both sides. And I also didn't like AD situation because he did it mid-season. I think if you commit to something, you finish it. That's why I have a problem with college football players, college basketball players um, transferring mid-season when they're not playing or they get benched. Because I think if you commit to something, finish it, see it through, regardless of what happens. And then at the end of the season, if you want to reevaluate your place on the team, if you want to go somewhere else, then transfer. In the case of college, athletics or in the case of the NBA, NFL, whatever, you can request a trade. You can talk to management about, hey, like, like let's talk about some situations. But I think the problem is, is that we're not seeing enough communication between the two sides. And I think if there can be more of a level of a respect on both sides, um, you know, listen, again, it's a player's league. And I think a lot of times management and owners are trying to take some of that power back, which is why they do some things that are very questionable amongst the players and in reality, that this will, the NBA will always be a player's league. It's been that way for the last 20 to 30 years, and I think it's going to continue to be that way. But I think there has to be a sense of, and sense of professionalism on both sides and a constant communication. Because again, if there's no top-down communication, the whole organization is not going to, have, is not going to be balanced. And that's some of the problems we've been seeing with um, NBA teams and their players um, over the last few years with some of these high-profile stars. Thank you for listening to the Get a Grip podcast. Hope to put something out for you soon. Um, thank you again for listening. Tune in next time. And uh, you know, if there's any feedback you have for me, please uh, just let me know. If there's anything you want me to talk about or address, please let me know. And um, have a great day.